and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with Natalia Molina about her new book, A Place at the Nairi. So I really enjoyed this book, and I also really enjoyed this conversation because on the one hand, it's an LA story, right? So it's about um, the community that formed around Natalia's grandmother's restaurant in Los Angeles, the Nayarit. And what I particularly enjoyed about this was the opportunity to think about how a place-centered history helps us to think differently about history and to see the people who make history differently. You know, So the kind of history that she's telling is a history about a restaurant owner. It's also about clients that come in. It's also about gay waiters and waitstaff and the cooks and the kind of whole scene that comes around something that's very everyday to many of us, which is just going out for dinner. And that is shot through with all kinds of personal histories, but also huge histories, right? The movements within LA, the social changes within LA, it reflects the social changes within the United States across that period. Like it's really fascinating. I think it's just such an interesting hook to have on history. Yeah, you mentioned that in the interview, the place-centric history. And I just love that idea of like a stationary spot, you know, or like Mm -hmm. a single frame through which so much can pass through, as opposed to trying to, you know, craft an arc of, of a story from a lot of disparate events. That one thing, and then just going so deeply into a location or... It reminds me of that famous Whitman poem on crossing Brooklyn Ferry, where he's on the ferry and watching the water and the and the shore and the people. And he's thinking about all the hundreds of thousands of people who have also been in the same spot and how like that is both a point of connection, but also a point of recognizing that history is not just a fixed moment in time, right? Like you're constantly passing over history, rediscovering history, and also yourself participating in it when, you know, you may not even notice that, like you just think you're going about your everyday life. And I feel that, I don't know, I guess in some ways it makes the present for me seem a bit more like magical, but also makes me feel a bit more accessibly connected to the past in everyday life. Yeah. And I think for so many of us who live in Los Angeles, you know, we're used to certain neighborhoods being celebrated and others just completely being ignored and and not really knowing even where to start if we want to know the history of our own neighborhood. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. been my case at times where it's kind of like wanting more stories, wanting to go deeper and not finding a ton of books on where I live in Los Angeles. So to get this rendering of Echo Park where the Nayarite was, was, was great and definitely left me hungry for more. So yeah, that's great. Well, should we get to that interview? Let's do it. happy to be speaking with the historian Natalia Molina today. Natalia Molina is the author of the books How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, as well as Fit to be Citizen, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, 1879 through 1940. In addition to publishing widely in scholarly journals, her work has been featured in publications including the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the San Diego Tribune. She's a distinguished professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California, and in 2020, she became a MacArthur Fellow. 
She joins us to speak about her most recent book, A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. The book follows Melina's maternal grandmother, Doña Natalia Barraza, who immigrated to Los Angeles from Mexico in the 1920s and went on to open a series of restaurants. The most successful and longest lasting was the Nayarit, which opened on Sunset Boulevard in Echo Park in 1951. The restaurant served the ethnically diverse and historically progressive and queer neighborhood for over two decades. As Melina shows in her book, it was a refuge for the city's Latinx community, many of whom were recent arrivals in the United States. At the Nayarit, they could, quote, come together for labor, leisure, and access to a ready-made social network, end quote, and this act alone would shape the face of Los Angeles for years to come. Thanks so much for being here, Natalia. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Natalia, just to get us started, can you talk to us about how you came to this project? I really love the kind of archival digging that you start the book with. In the mid-2010s, I was invited to give a keynote at a conference on California history. And I had just published my book, How Race is Made in America. And so I was looking for new material. And it was a point where Echo Park was changing pretty dramatically with all the gentrification. And I would often come up to LA. I was teaching at UC San Diego at the time. And I would go out and people would say, oh, you're staying in Echo Park? You know, is it an Airbnb? And I was like, well, no, I'm staying with my family. People live there. And it was a reminder that people didn't have a sense that there was actually a neighborhood here with a vibrant community with vital institutions, which I call urban anchors in the book. And so I thought, let me write a piece about Echo Park for this talk. And it was fascinating to me that it was so well attended because people wanted to talk about changing neighborhoods. And not everybody was from Echo Park. Some people were from Highland Park. Some people were from Boyle Heights, but everybody wanted to give their piece of history at this conference. Can you actually take us a little bit back to what Echo Park was like in the 1950s? You know, as Kate has said in the intro, it was this seemingly quite unique melting pot of both Latino, queer, and progressive liberal communities. So what was the scene around which the Nayarit emerged? Sure. And I'll take you back one more step from that, which is, you know, my grandmother opened the first Nayeti closer to Alvera Street. And when that lease was running out, she could have gone two miles east into East Los Angeles. It was right off Sunset. So she could have just followed Sunset, gone two miles east and into East LA, where she would have been surrounded by people that spoke Spanish like herself. You know, she never learned to speak English. But instead, she went two miles west to Echo Park. And Echo Park at this time was a vibrant immigrant community. If you look at the census records, it's majority white, fewer Latinos, and even fewer Asian Americans, really no African Americans. But by white, what they're really talking about are white immigrants. So Eastern Europeans, there's an Italian deli, there's a restaurant by Hungarian owners, there's a French restaurant. And so she's still surrounded by immigrants like herself. It's also been a progressive neighborhood since its founding with artists. It's the home of the first gay organization. And it borders Silver Lake, which has always traditionally been known as a LGBTQ area. So it's very diverse in that way. It's also diverse structurally, by which I mean that 
there were at the time segregated neighborhoods, legally segregated, where it was written into their housing codes that they could not actually sell their properties to people of color. So maybe somebody didn't want to actively discriminate against an immigrant or an African-American, but it was written into an entire track of homes that they were not allowed to sell this property. Echo Park didn't develop in that way with its courthouses and its landscape with hills and its tradition of socialism and communism and union organizers and activists. It didn't have that same kind of racial segregation that you saw in other parts of Los Angeles. Why is that? Can you say more on how that area evaded those types of racial covenants? I mean, one, I do think it's that from its founding, it was founded by people on the margins, those kind of people that were artists and writers, those people that appreciated that bohemian lifestyle. But I spoke with Wade Graham, who's also working on Echo Park, because there's really no histories of Echo Park. And Wade's take on it was that even the geography of Echo Park doesn't really lend itself, right? Like you can't have like a big housing track community in that same way, like on that grid. Instead, it's these little bungalows and house courts and hilly areas where people kind of get to find refuge. I was really interested here in the distinction you make between public space and semi-public space. Because I think in Los Angeles, we're always thinking about the lack of public space, but that the way that you depicted public space might not be like the ultimate type of space, especially for people who feel policed or new arrivals or people who are undocumented. And it's in fact in a semi-public space, so a less open space where those people might be able to flourish and really be themselves and become placemakers is another term you use. So Maybe talk about that distinction and why it was important in the case of the Nairi. It's really important to have unfettered democratic access to public space. But that hasn't always been the case. If you look at public spaces like swimming pools, parks, sidewalks, streets, they've been policed for decades, for you know over 100 years. If you look at Chinese immigrants that came in the late 19th century, we often talk about the Asian Exclusion Act in 1882. But for the Chinese that were already living here, they came up with ordinances of like where they could work, where they could live, but also what how they could walk down the sidewalk, what they could carry down the sidewalk, because it was a way of controlling their work. And those kinds of attitudes, practices are what I call my second book, racial scripts. They can then be extended to other groups. And so Los Angeles experienced that same kind of segregation in terms of racial ordinances, zoning ordinances that were based on race. And so for these immigrants, these Mexican immigrants that couldn't sit wherever they wanted to in the theater that could only go to the public pool if they were there the day before it was cleaned, that if they wanted access to public health clinics, which I write about in my first book, that that was only on certain days of the week when they would hold the Mexican clinic, then you start to see public space ain't always that democratic. And so people need to form their own spaces. And in this case, it was a restaurant. And so I think there might be an attitude of, well, that's not really public space. It's also a business. Yes, but it's a space controlled by the community for the community. Just to kind of follow up, I mean, 
it would not strike many as surprising that I think oftentimes when you find quote unquote ethnic enclaves within large urban centers, the anchors, to use your term, usually are restaurants or other kinds of like independent businesses. Can you talk about the connection or the community that uniquely forms around that type of business and why restaurants are such a staple kind of business within these communities? I'll use the oral interviews that I did as an example. So when I would ask people why the Nayari, for example, was so important, the first answer was, well, the food, of course. So, you know, it has to be good food. It has to be food that also, in this case, for a Mexican restaurant, an immigrant restaurant, also, you know, nourishes people's souls. It has that connection to their homeland. It's that kind of Christian ratatouille moment, whatever you want to refer to in terms of like, I eat this and I'm transported to this different moment. Along with that, you also had that people felt that they could be seen at this restaurant, that they could go and speak their language, maybe sing along with a trio. One of the people I interviewed said was for a Sunday meal, you'd see families there and they'd be making the sign of the cross. I have another friend that works on Zoot Suits, Luis Alvarez, the Zoot Suit writes in LA. And his thing was always, how is a restaurant different than a nightclub, for example, where people would go dancing? And what you see in the restaurant is it's accessible to people of all ages. It also might depend on the time of day. So, you know, you might have workers there going for their lunch and then maybe stopping in for a drink after work, maybe families on Sunday. But on Friday, Saturday, it could be more like a club-like atmosphere. So it suited the needs of many people. And one of the things that I also found very interesting was that while Mexicans wore its core clientele, there were also a lot of famous people, both musicians, kind of Hollywood, as well as athletes, some Latinos, some not. But for those Latinos that were well-heeled, famous, they still might experience discrimination if they went out in Los Angeles. And so here was a place where even with their privileges, that they could feel safe that they could feel embraced, and that they could speak in their own language. I also thought something that was interesting is that the food the Nayarit served was way more reflective of the state of Nayarit where your grandmother came from, as opposed to lots of other more anglicized, you know, whitewashed meals, or even you make this distinction that a lot of early Mexican food in Los Angeles was called Spanish food. I think the fact that the food was really authentic, quote unquote, was also pretty notable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Restaurants by default have to change their menus and adapt to where they are. So it's hard for a meal to truly be authentic because they might not find the same ingredients here. They also want to make a profit. So they're also trying to make it palatable to a wider audience. And my grandmother certainly experienced those things. That being said, she always reserved the majority of the menu to try to make it as close to the food of where she came from, to the point where while the restaurant closed when I was very young, it was the food that I remembered and that other restaurants that we went to from the state of Nayeri and then my own family made that food. I always thought that was Mexican food kind of writ large. And it wasn't until later that we would see regional food that I was like, oh, okay. And then I thought 
restaurants that did kind of that whitewashing of Mexican food. I just thought that was restaurant food. I didn't realize that was actually meant to be Mexican food. And so she would do things like machaca, which is a shredded beef with a chili and spices. And that's something that you could have for dinner, but also as a late night snack for hangovers. She'd do specialty things that were only really now in 2022 in the last couple of years, see more widespread in Los Angeles, like Bidia, that spicy goat meat that you scoop up with a tortilla. There are other things that she did that in the part of Mexico, she's from Nayarit and Acaponeta. The cooks make gorditas, which are these thick corn pockets stuffed with ingredients. And it's bathed in this light tomato sauce made from this chicken broth and fresh tomato and a little garlic. And while she didn't have gorditas on the menu, she did use that same tomato sauce for her tacos. And this is such a regional thing that during the pandemic, when we were all missing restaurants, when restaurants were closed, I went to a local taco place for takeout and it had just opened up and it there was nothing in the name to suggest it had a connection to Nayarit, but he did that with his tacos. And so I said, where are you from? And he said, from the state of Nayarit. And I said, where in the state? And he said, you probably haven't heard of it. And I said, just tell me where. (laughs) And we went down to like the city, to the kind of surrounding area. He's like, how did you know? I'm like the tomato sauce. It's not a sauce. It's like this light broth. So she did things like that, that right away, it's like when you're in public and you hear somebody with an accent, a regional accent from where you are or speaking in your language, that was the kind of radar she put out with her food. One of the other things that I found really interesting and is kind of a through line is that the sense of gay clientele and community that kind of formed around the restaurant. In fact, like many of the workers who then went on to have their own restaurants were also gay. So can you talk about that kind of queer presence that was there and kind of what that also meant at a time when not only, you know, Latinos in Los Angeles, as you were describing before, had their movements restricted in that way, that kind of semi versus actual public space. Can you talk about how that might have impacted also the gay community at the time? This was a big reason why I wanted to write this book. So, you know, I'm a professor, I'm a historian, I have taught in history departments, ethnic studies, urban studies, and for the majority of my career, I've taught some version of a class, race in the city. So something that combines kind of race and ethnicity in cities. And oftentimes those stories are told as these are these immigrant urban histories or African-American urban histories, and these are LGBTQ urban histories. And they never really intersect. And so another thing that was interesting about her opening the restaurant in Echo Park was that because Echo Park was this geographic crossroads, it was also this cultural crossroads that not only embraced people of color, but also the LGBTQ community. And so if she had had a restaurant in East Los Angeles, for example, it would have been more difficult for her gay waiters, gay staff to be open in that way. And yet they could do that in Echo Park. I will go back to what I said earlier in terms of, but still structurally, there were limits within that. There were all kinds of ways in which the gay community was policed, in which restaurants could be shut down if they were seen as kind of a gay urban anchor. And so she was also conservative when it came to her gay weight staff saying, you know, 
You can do whatever you want in your own lives, but at the restaurant, you can't really be openly gay. That being said, you know, their friends would meet them there. They would come visit them, their gay friends. They might then also go out together in groups, but it was a safe space, but it was a safe space within limits. What's also interesting then is in those waiters and cooks go on to open their own restaurants. And those restaurants do become gay urban anchors in their own right. Restaurants like El Chavo, restaurants like Conquistador, they were operating in Silver Lake. So also we see how there's that shift from Echo Park to Silver Lake. But it's a way of saying, let's talk about Latinx history and LGBTQ history in the same story. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Natalia Molina, author of A Place of the Nyeri, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I'm so happy to have the writer Otessa Boschweg back on the line. Otessa Boschweg is the author of many books, most recently her novel Lapbona. And she's here to recommend a book. Hey, everybody. So this is a little bit off the fiction track into the realm of super cheesy self-help. But I was listening to the radio and, okay, I don't identify as a Christian, but I like Christian radio. It's always interesting. Sometimes... It's interesting because what I'm hearing strikes a really deep chord and I learn something. And sometimes I I hear things that I really feel uncomfortable about. But I was listening to an interview with this guy called Mike Bechtel. And he's a doctor of education and has written a bunch of books that are published under the genre of self-help. But I think what he's really doing is just trying to help uh, people understand people. And he was actually brilliant in this interview. And, um, you know, I'm not a parent, but I am an aunt, which is kind of like being a parent. And I've been thinking a lot about how people develop personalities based on their place in the family system. And thinking about my place in my family being and like the aspects of uh, self that, you know, bring me a lot of safety and pleasure and the aspects of self that feel really dangerous and um, unstable. And then I, I, I hear this guy, Dr. Mike, on Christian radio talking about people pleasing. And I've never thought of myself as a people pleaser, not once in my life. I always think like, oh, I'm so difficult. Like people must not be able to stand me. But then I was listening to what he was describing, like the thoughts and actions of people who are people pleasers. And I really, really related to it. I related to it on so many ways in my personal relationships, in my professional decision-making. And I was like, wow, what would, I, what would I be if I let go of that? So I bought the book and it's called The People Pleaser's Guide to Loving Others Without Losing Yourself. And I'm enjoying it. <laughs> not, not my usual um, like bedtime reading, but um, it's very interesting. It's challenging. 
And does God figure in at all or God's well, out of it? It's not written from any kind of religious point of view, but this guy is obviously a man of faith. Let's put it that way. And is there any advice so far that really sticks out at you? It's just something you plan to start implementing to stop pleasing people so much. Not yet. I'm not, I'm not that deep into it yet, but what I am noticing is um, like the way that I listen the way that my face moves when I'm listening. I'm like, well, is there something self-centered about being so aware of wanting to validate the other person while I'm listening? I was like, what am I really doing? You know, is this part of, I guess I'm not saying I'm doing anything wrong yet. I'm just saying I'm calling into question how honest I am in nonverbal communication. (laughs) Great. Well, yeah, it's definitely something to think about how much you're performing for someone else as opposed to being your authentic self, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should all probably question that um, sometimes. Well, that sounds great. Can you tell us the author and the name of the book one more time? It's Dr. Mike Bechtel, B-E-C-H-T-L-E. And the title of the book is The People Pleaser's Guide to Loving Others Without Losing Yourself. Thank you so much, Otessa. Thanks, Kate. That was Otessa Mushfeg. Her latest novel is Lapona. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Natalia Molina, author of A Place at the Nyeri. Your grandmother, who you never met, um, took over, you know, adopted your mother because your your mother's birth mother died of tuberculosis. So she took on two children. Um, and it seems throughout the book that she helped and nurtured so many people um, that she that she really created a extended family with so many people. And that part of what she did was pe- help people immigrate to the to the United States. Um, can you talk about just her from what you gleaned from the research since you didn't meet her, what her character was like, you know, what, what made her tick, how she was able to take on so much, start her own business, you know, raise a family, help others, like what kind of person she was. Sure. Um, First I'll say this was another reason I wanted to write the book. There's a lot of histories of immigrants and how they settle And they talk about these hometown associations, how immigrants help one another. And so that is something I talk about in the last chapter of the book. Um, But I always, when I would hear these histories, when I would see presentations on them or read these histories, I would always wonder like, well, what community was formed already so that people were able to organize? And I think that's the kind of work that my grandmother did through the restaurant. While she didn't head a hometown association, she headed a restaurant that functioned as one. And as someone who you know, uh, does ethnic studies and so knows a lot of the sociological literature on immigration, it's as if she had read that sociological literature and was like, what do you need? Well, you need a head start. You need someone to maybe provide you a place to live. You need access to a job. It'd be great if you could learn to speak some English. And so these are the kinds of rules that she 
um, implemented. So she did help people, but she had her caveats. If you're going to come, you're going to work, you're going to live in my house because um, although I'm offering you this opportunity, I don't want any, you know, kind of scandal at my restaurant. And, you know, so the women have to be chaperoned, this kind of thing. Um, and so, she, you know, she would set these things in place. That being said, you know, she was not a warm person. Um, there's not one person <laughs> in the interviews that described her as warm, as nurturing. Uh, some of the women said that they, you know, thought of her as a role model in terms of she was a businesswoman and she could accomplish a lot. But um, I mean, even her own granddaughter, my cousin, who's the eldest of us who did meet her, said that when you know her mom would take them, uh, her and her you know, siblings, to see my grandmother, that they wouldn't go to her home. They would go to the restaurant. And they would enter through the back of the restaurant, so enter through the kitchen. And her first impulse was to look to the counter where she knew that my grandmother always left her purse. And if her purse wasn't there, she breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief. <laughs> because even to you know her granddaughter, she was an imposing figure. She was very watchful of everything going on at the restaurant. And, you know, that was what made her tick. And she liked to use the profits to uh, immigrate more people, to hire attorneys, to help them get uh, letters of sponsorship so they could get a visa, because she knew it wasn't just about immigrating to the U.S., but it was about immigrating legally so that they could have access to jobs, um, so that they could get Social Security, even if they never became citizens so that they could work front of house jobs and they didn't have to hide in the shadows. So it was also about providing an immigrant experience that provided mobility. I know that you've obviously researched, um, you know, part of this is your family history most directly, but you've also studied, as you said, you know, uh, race and the city and kind of how those two things meet and mingle and the stories that, that proliferate around that. Um, I'm wondering if in the process of this book, there was anything that you found that was truly surprising to you and that you were like, oh, I, I never actually thought about that in that way before. Um, I, there's a, a couple things, but I guess one of the stories that I'll tell is, um, you know, I wrote this book because as someone who studies this history, I wanted to see LGBTQ history and immigrant history intersecting. I didn't want people to, you know, I wanted to show this history in a way that wasn't always so siloed. That being said, uh, there was one evening where I went to dinner with uh, one of the former waiters of the Nayari, and he was now going to retire. He had worked in a restaurant in East Los Angeles. And we we're talking about uh, the Conquistador, the you know LGBTQ urban anchor in Silver Lake, that it was about to close. And we were talking about all the workers there, like, what are they going to do? You know, some of them still only speak Spanish after, you know, or, or mainly Spanish. Um, and some of them, you know, don't drive. They just, you know, they walk to work. They live in the area. It was that kind of, it was a vestige from that time period where you could actually live where you worked and you could walk to work or take a short bus ride. And so we're talking about that. And I said, oh, what's going to happen to Ricardo? Um, and I said, wait, you're retiring. Maybe Ricardo can take over your job. And, you know, Ricardo was known as such a lively presence at the Conquistado. He would dress up 
uh, for holidays, you know, for Easter, for example, you might wear uh, tails with a, a cotton uh, tail, like, you know, a bunny rabbit and, you know, just really not have to worry about hiding his gay identity working at a place like that in Silver Lake. And the person I was with, Poncho, who I read in the book says, oh, no, Ricardo could not work at that restaurant in East L.A. And I said, why not? And he formed this kind of box with his hands. And in Spanish, she said, Lencajaria, like it would box him in. And I thought, wow, right? Like I'm writing about these people from the 50s and 60s, and yet this is 2010, and we are still seeing those kinds of silos. And this is why, you know, these things that seem so historical to us are so urgently relevant today. When we hear today about, you know, somebody crashing at, a, a, you know, um, drag queen story hour so that, you know, kids think of trans people as bad or that people are going to, you know, it's pride month now that people are going to, you know, uh, attack a pride parade, a pride event. Um, and luckily that plan was foiled. You realize how much these communities are still under siege. And part of it is just being who they are in public. And that these are things that we need to study historically so that we have a sense of how things um, sometimes were more progressive in the past than they are now. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about Echo Park now. You showed that the white population in Echo Park did go down over the decades. And even though you say it wasn't a utopia by any means at the time, how diverse the community was, you know, that your grandmother could call upon you know, Jewish businessmen to help her get leases, that there were all different kinds of people, the socialists on the hill. It, it does sound idyllic when I walk the streets of Echo Park now and, and as these anchor businesses are disappearing. So I'm wondering, like, do you think the city is becoming more segregated? And in terms of anchor businesses, uh, I know that you're not a politician, but it's like, how do we measure that insane drive for like housing, housing, housing? with the importance, which I think is definitely underplayed, of like the importance of memory, the importance of places that have been there uh, for a long time, just for regular people who live in the city who need some point of reference and without it kind of lose a sense of, you know, civic mindedness. Like if, if everything is just constantly churning, like what do you have? It seems like a really difficult balance. Well, one, when was the last time you heard the word civic mindedness, <laughs> right? I mean, so part of it is, is that framing. Sure, Echo Park is an attractive area for a lot of reasons. You know, its location, its accessibility, uh, that, that geographic crossroads, but also that cultural crossroads. And ironically, it's those same attributes that, that make it attractive that also make it so that it's changing so much. And so if we want to hold on to that, that glue that held Echo Park together for so long, then we need to make a concerted effort to do so. You know, not just Echo Park, but so many areas, right? Bow Heights, you know, Highland Park and, and all over the U.S. and the world. Um, so part of it is balancing that, you know, and as someone who this will be the third time I say it in the actually that they're not just individual choices, but if we want to hang on to those things, like, you know, do we also say, well, then we want to make sure there's a certain amount of low income housing, that if we do build, that there's low income housing, 
that um, if we do want these kind of businesses, there are other incentives. You know, the other thing that's happening in Echo Park now, and KCRW just did this series uh, called Born and Raised, and I was on the first segment, is even the businesses that came in and, you know, enabled some of this change, they are now being priced out. And these are businesses that worked hard, many of them to be urban anchors themselves, that people now have attachments to and now are being priced out themselves. So it's, I don't even think gentrification is really the word anymore. In LA, we're just increasingly seeing this wealthification and this increasing gap between have and have nots. Um, I think, you know, there was a story in the East Sider, the online paper, which I love, and it's so helpful, uh, so informative. And they had a story recently about a house that sold in Echo Park for something over $3 million. And so I looked to see where it was. It was, you know, one of the highest selling homes. It's by the two freeway. <laughs> it's by that area where you hate getting off, where everybody starts to kind of, everybody's moving to the left, to the right. And it's the most tangled uh, off ramp right there. And that's where that house is. So, you know, who's going to have access to these spaces? When I saw the cover of the book, I knew immediately where the Nayarit had been because I recognized um, the echo where I have gone um, over the years. And I thought I had no idea there was a Mexican restaurant here. Um, and you mentioned like the kind of uh, like little poles that the city, I've noticed the city putting up more recently to kind of give the neighborhood background and neighborhood history um, that seemed pretty ineffective to me. What are other ways you think we could at least imbue neighborhoods with their history so people don't walk around thinking like, that everything that they see is just, you know, the thing and, and have some sense of like, you know, the past in a neighborhood. I think that's a multi-pronged strategy that we can embark on. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot and, and working on. And, you know, part of it is working on this book, but part of it is also seeing recently, you know, all those statues coming down in the South um, and, and then seeing that we had our own on the West Coast in terms of like the, you know, Junipero Serra statues, remembering my own education in California for, you know, fourth grade curriculum, you have to build that mission. <laughs> and so it's like, how can we all work to understand our, our neighborhoods more? So I've been thinking about that in terms of K through 12 curriculum. Um, I've been coming up with curriculum for the book, but you know, this is something that we can all do in little ways, right? So things that people post on their social media, um, people are already doing this really important work. Uh, James Rojas, who's an urban planner, uh, does these workshops and walking tours and goes to festivals to help people, you know, uh, what he calls place it. Uh, great newsletter called Making a Neighborhood. Um, subscribing to your local papers, your local news organizations like the East Sider, like LA Taco. Those are two that I subscribe to. So, you know, I think it's going to change somewhat with digital humanities that people can, you know, do a project, you know, as, such as in school, and yet it can now be exported out. What I picture is a fourth grade class that goes and interviews the people in their own urban, their own urban anchor, you know, the founders, the owners, the customers, 
and researches that neighborhood. And then we can like pinpoint all those things on a Google map and together, you know, do their version of their neighborhood. Um, so I'm hoping for something like that, but I do think, I think there's already a lot of great work going on. Um, it just needs to be more accessible and it just needs to be supported more. In a way, following up on that, um, you know, I, I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about the importance of place-based histories. So as opposed to, I think oftentimes, you know, I think about this in terms of queer history, right? right? On the one hand, it can be place-based, but we're looking mostly for a signal event, right? So the Stonewall riot of, I mean, and we're speaking during Pride Month, right? But it stands in as kind of like, that was the revolutionary moment, right? So there has to be some flashpoint. But one of the things that I find really fascinating about a more place-based focus to histories is that you see much more complexity and you see the change over time. And so, for example, I never would have imagined the kind of story that you were able to tell by focusing on a single restaurant, right? As like, oh, now that is, it's a location, but it's not tied to a specific signal event, yet tells us something deep and nuanced about a community and our own history. Well, I'm with you. <laughs> you know, we are used to thinking about those signal events, right? So one of the things was that when I did the interviews, that was one of the ways I tried to get into it was mm. at, you know, because I, at the beginning, you know, I'm like, how am I going to write a whole history about a restaurant? And originally I thought I would write a history that each chapter would correspond to one of the restaurants, you know, the, both the Nayadi and then the restaurants that, that came from it because they're beloved institutions too. So, you know, we already talked about Conquistador, you know, El Chavo, Baragans. Uh, my aunt's store at Bate uh, survived for 49 years until, you know, it was brought down by gentrification. And so um, I thought it would be that. But as I was interviewing people, um, I would ask them about these kind of major events like the Watts riots. And they would sometimes say, like, I, I don't know, I was working. And at first I thought, oh, this is devastating to the book. And then I realized, no, but that is how people live their lives, right? Like you're very busy, you go on your way. Um, and, you know, this is a time where it's not like people were checking their, their phones constantly for, or that they had constant access to the news. But I think what's interesting about a place-based history is it just makes it more real for people. Like people can connect to it in certain ways. And even if you haven't been to this restaurant, You've been to a restaurant like it, and you know that that place has its own history, and you know that that history is never written about in books, and especially not the books that you read in school. I mean, how many times have I heard from people like, you're a historian? I hated history in high school. They hated history in high school because they never saw themselves reflected in it. And by focusing on the city, not as it was designed, but as people used it, all of a sudden you get to see that city from a 360 degree perspective and you get to see the ways in which, you know, laws are enacted, um, spaces are planned, and yet people find their own ways to make a life in those places that's livable and meaningful for them. Well, I think that's a nice place to end. Thank you so much, Natalia, for being here. Thank you. That was Natalia Molina. Her latest book is A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. 
Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Blood. Thank you.